0: Welcome to the Work That Matters podcast by Ikigai Coffee. My name is Jeroen Dregman, I'm your host, talking to the people behind the Work That Matters. If you want to find out more about this episode or any other episodes, please visit www.ikigai.coffee and I hope to see you there. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first podcast. My name is uh, Jeroen Brugman. I'm the owner of Ikigai Coffee, and I'm trying to bring more transparency and more connectivity throughout the coffee value chain. And today I have a guest on my podcast. It's the first guest, and her name is Sarah Marocchi. Uh, I've known Sarah for a couple of years now already. Uh, She was born in Italy, Turin, um, studied philosophy and politics in the UK, and had a master's degree in peacekeeping management i'm pretty curious what that actually uh, uh, encompasses she's a a certified curator certified by the coffee quality institute worked uh, as the global supply chain director at sustainable harvest an organization which name says quite enough Uh, and she was uh, one of the main consultants uh, working on a project for the Winrock foundation in myanmar and we will elaborate a little bit on that or a little bit. Uh, we'll go uh, into depth uh, on that subject. Um, she's currently the owner of Vuna Origins Consultancy, consulting, uh, making coffee equitable and sustainable. She's a true coffee value chain expert. I'm really proud to have her on, uh, on this show as a first guest. Um, I can say in short, uh, she is a very kind little lady. With a big voice and a boatload of knowledge about coffee and how to organize and improve the specialty coffee supply chain. So, Sarah, welcome on the first episode.
1: Yay! Thank you, Jeroen. Thanks for yeah. having me on your first podcast. Really exciting.
0: So good to have you here. We've uh, we've had some experience on um, the podcasting before.
1: Mm-hmm. Correct.
0: Together. Yes. <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. It was. Uh, I think it was a year ago. Um, I helped you out with a recording uh, of uh, a Myanmar podcast as well, Mm -hmm. where you interviewed um, Coco Wynn and um, what was the other?
1: April. April. Yeah.
0: Um, About the project you did in Myanmar. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will elaborate a little bit more about that later on. Um, But um, yeah, it is a really impressive project. So uh, I'm currently offering the coffee from Myanmar. um, And to be honest, I'm drinking it right now.
1: So. <laughs> wow, that's great. That's yeah. nicely planned. So,
0: so my my question to you, my first question is, are you drinking coffee right now?
1: I uh, am. Yeah. Yes, I am drinking coffee.
0: Uh, what coffee are you drinking?
1: I'm drinking uh, Burundian coffee. And I, I got the bag from my Coffee Vine subscription.
0: Oh, nice. So Coffee Vine that offers um, multiple um, roasters in one box. Yeah. Um, how many did you have this time? Is it th- three or four?
1: Three? I think my subscription now is one um, oh, because one, I okay. have multiple subscriptions. So I try to yeah. um, work with different uh, subscription providers. So I get one from Coffee Vine. I get another one from Shokunin as well.
0: Oh, nice. From Yele. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: A really nice uh, nice guy. Um, I saw your, um, uh, your presentation of um, your RICO presentation. RICO? uh there's a lot going on in the the world of coffee at the moment uh in the value chain um and there's a big elephant in the room Mm. can you tell me what is the big elephant in the in the room of coffee
1: i guess since uh since since i last spoke in rico there is i've come to the realization that there's multiple elephants in the room uh some bigger than others um Specifically on my uh, Rico talk, I was addressing um, the consolidation, the market consolidation um, of the specialty coffee industry. And um, at that moment in time, which I believe it was 2000, you know, between 2014, 15, 16, we've seen a very aggressive consolidation strategy um, that basically involved uh Um, A lot of interesting and famous companies, sort of the pioneers of specialty um, being acquired uh, by uh, Jab, the investment company. And, and I think that while on the one hand, we, you know, some were celebrating um, that these brands uh, finally received investments to do bigger and better things. So they, they portrayed it as a way to um, scale impact because now they just had an injection of funds. On the other hand, a lot of people were skeptical whether this big money um, would change the the mission and the values of of uh, our you know favorite roasters. It's yeah. just, so that was that was that was basically what what the elephant in the room was back then.
0: Yeah, yeah. It can do a lot of good, but it can also do a lot of harm yeah it's like um, um, it creates a lot of possibilities to uh, to increase impact and to increase coffee quality, mm-hmm. but it can also be a big uh limitation of uh, of progress yeah
1: yeah because all of a sudden you know you're accountable to somebody else uh, when you when you receive investments um, or you're acquired you know to a certain extent you lose part of your freedom um, yeah. to do what you want and 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 I think that companies, um, you know, they those companies started because they wanted to make a change in coffee, and they wanted yeah. to make it better.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can uh, I can relate to that. Um, uh, they started as mission-driven companies, and now they've been acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They can still have a mission, but there's also uh, other um, uh, benefits that are um, uh, involved now, and that's simply about the, the numbers. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah. Uh, so what is, um, what is your finding? Since uh, um, you spoke about the elephant in the room in your RICO presentation, mm-hmm. that's uh, two years ago, I think, three years ago?
1: Yeah, it must have been almost four years ago. Yeah.
0: It was in Dublin, right? The World of Coffee? Yeah,
1: yeah I presented in Dublin and that was the elephant in the room. And then I presented again in uh, Budapest, but that was strictly on price risk management. So the Dublin talk was in 2016. I re- sixteen already. Yeah, oh, wow. I remember yeah. because it was the time when we found out that uh, uh, the UK voted for Brexit. So yeah. it was uh, it was that year because I re- I remember a lot of the English and uh, roasters were really gutted that they were going to have to get out of the EU. And then um, yeah, that was that that was I think that was two thousand sixteen.
0: Oh, well, wow. it's uh, quite uh, interesting uh in 2016 I, I was in coffee as well back then but uh back then um i was in the the middle side of the market there was no conversation at all about uh, about uh uh the price crisis initiative or uh, the elephant in the, in the room mm. there were no discussions um uh at all mm. so that is uh, that's quite in- interesting you were one of the the first i think um, that were uh, involved in uh, in this
1: yeah i think that it was, it was definitely discussed in small circles and people obviously knew what, uh, what was happening, but I think yeah. that the, we did not have a, an industry discussion about it and it was kind of all hush, hush convos and private conversation.
0: So that was four years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just mentioned, mentioned, uh, of course, uh, there it is again, the big elephant in the room or the multiple elephants in the room and has um uh, has there been a lot of change since then and is uh has the elephant in the room grown or or is it shrinking or are there more elephants coming into the room and does it still fit <laughs>
1: yeah that's a good question i i feel that consolidation is still happening and going on and yeah. uh that's that hasn't changed but what i think has improved to a certain extent is um, the ability of uh, value chain partners, whether it's importers or exporters or producers, to absorb and, and mitigate the impacts of the market's consolidation. So we got better at dealing with it, which I, you know, compared to a few few years ago. And and every company has their own strategies, uh, but I think that overall it's 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 better than it used to be four years ago and i think we have more tools are our, in our toolbox to to deal with consolidation i yeah. think the only real elephant in the room right now or a new one it's always been there but it's definitely grown bigger it's uh how low the commodity the market price for coffee is yeah and... the
0: cost of production and the global price of coffee Yeah. so i, th- I yeah. think
1: that that one uh the, the prices the, the market international market price uh, is too low in comparison yeah. to the cost of production of coffee for a lot of uh, smallholder farmers and um, and the situation you know this this period of low prices has been stretching for now you know two years um, and it we are not we're still, we're not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel so that's frustrating. You're
0: not seeing the light.
1: We're not.
0: Not yet. Ah, yeah. So talking about um, the price of coffee, um, to I understand it for a large part, but uh, can you explain how the price of coffee, the global price of coffee is uh, determined? How is it uh, constructed?
1: Yeah. So.
0: And then talking to um, uh, maybe even up to uh, uh, a roaster level. mm uh,
1: yeah, well the 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 good thing and the bad thing about the world market price is is that in a way it's it's very detached from the the price of coffee in in your supermarket or in your coffee shop or the price of coffee in a in a producing country. Yeah. So when we talk about the, the international market price uh, of coffee, what we are really saying is the the commodity price of coffee. So coffee is a publicly traded uh, good and uh, you can buy and sell coffee in commodity exchanges, which in many ways function the same ways as the stock market, right? It, but yeah. instead of trading company sh- shares, you, you share a, a good, a raw good, right? Something that eventually you turn into something. So green coffee, uh, cocoa, rice, even orange juice is, is, a, is a publicly traded commodity. Yeah. And in these, these big commodity exchanges, you have buyers and sellers. and um, So you have people that want to buy coffee and people that want to sell coffee and And then you know of, of, of course, it's basically you know the, the the market the international market price follows the the laws of supply and, and demand of these yeah. exchanges. Um, but just like in the stock market, you know there's you know you have a lot of buyers, you have a lot of sellers who have different different agenda and different objectives of what why they're trading coffee in the exchange, and then you also have people that are buying and selling. Purely on the exchange to uh, to make uh, profits, right? So we to call it, make profits. Yeah. yeah.
0: So is is it a, a, an even playing field? For example, um, um, the 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 value of coffee is it, um, uh, it can it be manipulated?
1: It's really hard. And if so,
0: yeah. how would it be uh, manipulated?
1: I think it's really hard to manipulate because these are heavily regulated markets. So it's you know unlike uh when you and I, for example, we might end up signing a contract with a a purchase contract with a producer organization um it's it's you know we individually as value chain partner, we decide um how this contract should be drafted and what should be in this contract right so that's a, an individual or a private discussions between a roaster and a producer, let's say, or an importer and a producer. Um, The commodity exchange uh, is a very heavily government-regulated market. And it's not easy to manipulate it because if it was, then um, it wouldn't exist anymore, right? So it does provide a lot of guarantees that it will function in a certain way. And you can't really manipulate it, but... um, if you comply with the the criterias you can buy and sell uh a lot of coffee so you can become an extremely influential buyer or an extremely influential seller and you could theoretically uh, push the price up or down and uh and that's how you know in the end you know you see these these fluctuations because people are constantly looking at um how the market is behaving, how the world around us is behaving and they make their investment decisions accordingly. So, yeah. just like any individual would, right? If you own uh in you know if you're if you made a financial investment, you want to make sure that it's a good one. So, you look around you, you look at the market, you look at the situation right? and you decide, okay, am I going to buy or am I going to sell? Am I going to do I trust this to put my money here or not? And so yeah. that's that's the where the fluctuation uh, in the C market uh, comes and and the, the the reality that it that this market is very disconnected from the day to day of of smallholders producer organizations, uh, but the yeah. market per se works exactly the way it's supposed to be. The commodity exchange market.
0: Yeah. In In what way is it disconnected from uh, the smallholders and also and also from the consumers actually? Because in, in what way? Yeah. Would you say? Uh, would you describe that?
1: well because i i feel that um the, the the commodity exchange doesn't necessarily consider the actual cost of productions of a farm in let's say guatemala or in myanmar or in rwanda yeah.
0: right the cost of production is just uh, the yeah it, as it says yeah. uh, the production costs yeah. of a kilogram of yeah. coffee yeah i
1: mean the the com- green, commodity green coffee is an anonymous coffee with a very, uh, particular, uh, characteristics, both in terms of, uh, uh, physical, and in a way, the way taste, right. And it's very yeah. much a commercial type of coffee. Um, and it's a coffee that we might be able to drink in some of the commercial blends or some of our instant coffee and so forth. There might be also some, some really good coffee that is traded on the exchange, but the majority the expectation is this is. This is a commodity product, and yeah. and what we're dealing with, so and we don't even know where it comes from, right? We don't know if it's, you know, if it's uh if it's a Nicaraguan or or, or a Honduras coffee. So it's it's basically a a black box where you pick your coffee, and you're you're guaranteed some level of quality, but not 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 much from that
0: so the selection criteria on a commodity coffee as you described are the far from quality wise so the selection criteria would be um, mainly financial so mainly uh, the price has to be correct
1: it's a standard it's like the you know if you say you buy a standard carton of milk versus uh, and that would you would what's traded uh and then you know, instead of you buying, I don't know, almond milk with chocolate, right? So that's, that's yeah. a plus. And the market is not going to give you that. Your market is going to give you your standard carton of milk that tastes like milk. And that's it. Yeah.
0: yeah serving the average. Yeah. Yeah. So what, um, um, what is the big disadvantage of the disconnection uh, between the commodity market and the producers? So uh, what are the effects that uh, the coffee producers um, uh, experience uh, with a disconnection to the market?
1: Well, f- well, first of all, as we said, you know, when, when, you, when you buy coffee in, in the commodity, you buy a standard product. And, um, yeah. and the price of that product changes every day, right? Um, today yeah. is you know, price X, tomorrow is price Y.
0: Um, What is the price of today? Do you know that? I
1: don't know, but I think it was about. Let me check. But I think it's probably like one one twelve or something. I haven't checked it since last last week. Uh,
0: Okay, last week. So one twelve was per pound mm -hmm. of green coffee. Green coffee, right? Yeah, green coffee. Yeah.
1: Um. And so, yeah. So that's that's the standard. But then you know, you there's people that you know produce coffee and and their reality. You know, you, you take, for example, a producer in Brazil that has, you know, maybe 50 hectares of, of coffee farm, and then yep. you have a smallholders in, the, in Guatemala who has 1.5 hectares, and then you have uh, another smallholder in, in Rwanda that has two hectares, and then you have somebody in Indonesia that, or Vietnam that, uh, you know, well, let's stick to Arabica. Uh, in Indonesia with you know maybe five or six sectors so their their everyday reality are very different um and if you take the Guatemalan or the Rwandan or the Indonesian farmer they will tell you that their cost of production is can be and it is right now above the commodity uh, price of coffee and yeah you know you we can stay and say who's right and who's wrong we're we're all right because the commodity is telling you what is from a from a perfect market system what is the what is the the price that it comes out of the supply and demand you know laws so that's more like yeah. a theoretical approach
0: and so you would say it's it's the average of uh, the supply and demand um, uh, price that would be uh, given for uh, for a pound of coffee
1: yeah, it's like exactly. So the commodity price represents everybody's prices put together in a way. Um,
0: yeah, and and then probably pushed to a low in one way or another. Well, so, yeah, exactly. Because th- that is the market uh the the, the stock exchange um and the, the 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 mechanism of it uh trying to create uh, the best uh, bang for your buck
1: yeah and uh
0: try to buy it mm-hmm. as uh, as cheap as possible and to sell it for as high as possible
1: yeah and it's just you know the day when you have more you have a lot of buyers and no seller, the price is gonna go up, and the time when of there course, are yeah. more sellers and no buyers, the price is gonna go down so it it doesn't it's not about costs it's about yeah. supply and demand, and yeah. it's very different from you know the the, the Coffee that is produced by smallholders—that's a—you know—they have a completely different discussion
0: around price. Yeah. Yeah, I believe seventy uh, percent of uh, all coffee worldwide is being produced by smallholders. Um, but uh, the smallholders—they um, don't um, quite benefit from uh, from yeah, from the our luxury coffee culture which is uh, mainly based on the global price of coffee on the world sea price. The the way I personally see it, the construction of the coffee industry uh, as it is right now, uh, if we continue to move forward the way we are drinking coffee right now, uh, serving the average um, coffee farmers will um, uh, choose other crops. Uh, coffee farmers will stop producing because the cost of production is higher than the uh, the price they receive per pound.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What are the best alternatives for coffee farmers to do? Is the uh, can they uh, should they stop producing uh, coffee? Should they aim on uh, specialty coffee, uh, which uh, <laughs> which is my pr- personal preference, of course? Mm-hmm. Or is is that uh, because you have seen um, uh, the value change? You've seen the uh, the farms, the different uh, crops they they can uh, produce. Or is it even that they should uh, start producing illicit crops uh, like opiates? Um, what would be the best option for coffee farmers right now?
1: I think that it's it's a hard. This is a hard question. Um, I, I feel that everybody, every farmer, will have to draw their own conclusions. Um, in the end, I mean, there is definitely an argument for 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 saying, well. If, if you feel that producing coffee will will force you I mean if your production um, the, the cost of your production is higher than what you can realize in your sales um, then you shouldn't do it and
0: yeah. that's a
1: very sort of black and white approach easier said yeah. than done because obviously the the, 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 the context in which these in which farmers are living may not give you a lot of other alternatives, right? It's easy for us to say, well, if this doesn't work, you know, switch to something else.
0: Um, yeah, there's a lot of nuances uh, to it. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. And it's, it's not always this easy uh, to, just, to just, you know, change. Um, so to say that you should stop producing coffee, I, I definitely feel that there are some farmers that uh, may need to consider that. Uh, and they are already, right? We have this thing where we, we I think a lot in, in our industry, we ask ourselves, what should farmers do? And instead of just looking what they are doing already and what they're doing tells us that A, they already are giving up coffee and they are finding, um, uh, they are planting different crops and cocoa uh, is one of them. Uh, yeah. Because of climate change and temperature rising, uh, Arabica uh, tends to be very susceptible to pests and diseases. So they're trying to find crops that are can take the heat, and cocoa can take a lot of heat. So there's definitely some uh, the repurposing of the farm to other crops. Uh, sometimes it's another commodity crop like cocoa. Other times it's local crops. Right. So in every local market. Uh, may say you know okay so we're we're in ethiopia for example everybody's planting maize and teff and other products that they can use for their own consumption or they sell in the local markets so that that strategy is is happening then the question of um should you do commercial or should you do specialty i think this is this is a tough one because i feel that um, doing only one or the other is 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 a little bit of again of a black and white uh scenario, and I think that only people that don't farm coffee can make it such a simply simplistic view of like either you do commercial or you do specialty. The reality is that you 're going to do both, and it 's just a matter of what is the balance between commercial and specialty. Um, not all coffee that you produce will qualify as specialty. So, what are you going to do with that coffee? So, to me, the, the the thing that I have often seen and discussed with the farms that I visited is that people decide that a percentage of their coffee will be uh, commercial or a low grade specialty, and and then another maybe smaller percentage will be will be specialty. So I look at it as if it's a pyramid, right? A pyramid where you have your revenue makers, right? So you need volume in order to make substantial margins, and you need a, a competitively priced product, and and that could be commercial or low entry specialty, and then you start building towards you start shooting towards the tip of the pyramid where you have you know your micro lots and your your exquisite coffees. And how big or how small those percentages are, how you want to build your pyramid, it's really up to um, the farmer herself um, to to decide how you want to play based on the market, based on where you're located, um, and so forth.
0: Yeah, and based on the connections uh, available.
1: Yeah, that too. I
0: can imagine a lot of uh, coffee growers, uh, coffee farmers are living in rural areas Uh, that are not uh, well accessible um, and uh, producing a high quality coffee um, will not directly provide them with a a higher income due to the lack of connection to the market Mm -hmm. is the the balance between the size of the current specialty market enough to advise um, all coffee farmers to step into specialty coffee or is it still in puberty um
1: I feel that the market is just not big enough for every farmer to be in in specialty. I think that that's that's, the, that's where we want to be. Um yeah. and I think that we want this we want specialty to be as inclusive as possible and we want to be appreciative of all kinds of coffees and, and profiles, right? I mean, I think that we definitely have a passion for microlots and experimental processing, but again, it goes back to the point where not everybody will be able to to do that and approach specialty in in that term. I think that what we Shoot for is coffees that are sustainably traded and sustainably produced, and it starts with an understanding that um, when a f- uh, you know any coffee has cost of productions and those should be covered um, by the price of by the price of coffee that that a farmer negotiates with a, with a buyer, and then yeah,
0: that should be the standards, yeah, and then I'll the top, default for all coffees, exactly, yeah.
1: and then you add a, a premium. Right, because you also want to, you can't just break even, right? So you also want to create a margin based on, you know, the the the, you know, your work and what you have done to that coffee. Whatever value you've created by producing that coffee should be monetized.
0: Yeah, it can be anything. It can be a single variety that is uh, quite rare, or it can be a processing method, experimental. Yeah, Uh, it it can be the story of the coffee farmer. Uh, it can be anything right. yeah
1: from a consumer perspective i think i always try to explain it this way you know here in europe we uh we we also have an agricultural sector right and yeah. we you know uh, we have uh, we have the dairy and we have farmers right so let's say for example um as of today when we buy milk uh at least in my country italy uh, we we have relatively fixed prices, right? The price of milk doesn't fluctuate that much. Um, but I also know that that price is partially subsidized by the government. And the reason why it's subsidized is because if farmers didn't receive the government subsidy, they would be losing money by producing that milk because they yeah. have to meet certain price quotas and certain volumes and so forth. So it's an extremely regulated market, just like, probably bread as well Um, where, yeah, you can, you can buy specialty bread, but basically, you know, you can't just shoot prices as you, as you like. So in the context of coffee, you don't have government subsidies, right? So whatever the price is in the international arena, a lot of the time producers can just have take it or leave it. And if you take it, you're going to sell your coffee below cost of production. Um, And if you leave it, you're going to have to find an alternative.
0: Yeah, which are not available often.
1: Exactly. So when we yeah. see our milk farmers spilling milk on the streets, is because basically what they're telling you is this, this milk is not worth it. Right. And I want to create a shortage so that the price goes up because I'm not making money by producing this milk. And, and so we, from a consumer perspective, just think what it means to produce something below cost of production and, would any consumer agree to do that themselves, and I think that the answer is no, or yeah. at least they wouldn 't personally, so why would you expect others to do the same right so I think that yeah. that's that 's a good way of understanding why uh buying a product below cost of production um, is 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 ethically um, exactly yeah yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's wrong
0: but how can consumers find out uh, if uh, their uh, coffee has been um, purchased by the roaster or by the importer um, from the cost of production upwards because that is not included at all in the, the world sea price in the global coffee price yeah so what is uh, um, uh, what is safeguarding uh, the uh, what what is the the organization or the certification program um, that is taking care of the farmer um, benefits in this uh, scenario, yeah. or or are there none?
1: There are some, and I think the the best way to understand it if you take it a step back, right? So, products like coffee and and cocoa were not available to us uh, until a few centuries ago, and they are what we can call colonial crops, right? So
0: yeah.
1: Europe decided that they wanted to keep their uh, population caffeinated because they needed people to be up and ready and alert and ready to go to the factories and put in their you know 15 plus hours of work. So coffee was built as a commodity. It, it was a product that had to be readily available to everybody because everybody needed to be caffeinated and it was a product that had to be price accessible, meaning everybody needed to afford it, right? If you want your population to be alert and caffeinated, you need to make that product available everywhere and it has to be cheap. And, And that went completely against the idea of, well, how does it cost to produce coffee? Nobody really cared because the colonies were producing coffees. Right, the colonies were extracting resources, natural resources, and exploiting human resources or labor yep. to produce it. And it didn't matter if you know folks in Indonesia wanted to produce coffee or not; they didn't have a choice. Sla- Same slavery. In, uh, yeah, yep. it was forced labor. It was slavery, and so forth. Yeah. So from the get-go, we have this understanding that coffee is cheap and. Because we wanted it cheap, not because it was cheap to produce. We made it cheap by forcing other people to do the dirty work.
0: Yeah, the and default we, is uh, is cheap. Yeah,
1: yeah. And now, of course, that that system uh, has changed. But in any way, um, in many ways, we've sort of kept this understanding that products that come from the global south, like coffee, like cocoa, um, need to be accessible because they are a mass-consumed product um and that's where i why i think a lot of consumers whether or not they they have a they care about sustainability or they are aware around or they are sensitive to social issues which most of them are cuz most people are they also have this understanding that coffee is cheap it's always been cheap so it's hard from the get go to question you know out of the blue all of a sudden am i buying a product that is keeping people in poverty. That's not a um, that's not a reasoning that a lot of consumers go through when they're shopping in supermarkets, and because yeah. it was never framed that way. Um, so when we start thinking about specialty, one of the first things that we did in the late nineties, as as an industry, it was starting to to talk about the people behind the coffee, right? Go the faces, the hands that pick the coffee because there was still this assumption that somehow coffee was born out of cans in supermarkets, right? Yeah, so
0: there's yeah, these miracle plastic bowls that are, yeah.
1: Exactly. So it's like, oh, you go to the supermarket and there's coffee. Most people don't even know it's a fruit or that it grows in uh, in within the, the tropics uh, and so forth. So by late 90s, early two thousand. Uh, that's the first movement to to let that wanted to make people aware consumers aware that there are actual people growing this product and that they're they're undergoing a lot of challenges to put that coffee on on the shelf for them and so the 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 the, the what we call the, the 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 specialty movements you know starting with the second wave of coffee moving away from commercial and commodity. So your instant coffee, your, your, your Nestle and your commercial brand to Lovely brands coffee. that are saying, you sure. know, we are actually trying to uh, speak to you about coffee as an agricultural product that is grown in, in countries like Brazil, like Colombia. And so in that sense, in the early, late nineties, early 20, early 2000 certification did a huge, made a huge contribution to um, at the consumer level. And, and I think that that was really the first time when people started to say, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna have to make sure that um, we're gonna have to pay a minimum price for this coffee. This coffee is worth more than what you're currently buying. Yeah, And that was a major shift um, that is still on today to the average consumer. I'm not talking about specialty coffee nerd, I'm talking my mom. You know, she knows that uh, fair trade coffee somehow equals to better living standards, or yeah. trying to escape that commercial cycle.
0: It, it kind of opened up the the supply chain, so it opened up the the, uh, the visibility and the transparency yeah. towards a coffee farmer. So there, you mentioned uh, fair trade um, and certification programs. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they they came up uh, twenty to thirty years ago. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them still exist. Mm-hmm and uh, how is how has their impact been over the 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 past yeah, let's say 20 to 30 years i think and, that and, and, yeah. and adding adding to that sorry mm-hmm. adding to that or uh, which are uh, the certification programs that um uh, you would say are the best of the of the class yeah in terms of uh, impact
1: yeah that that that's that's a good one um well i think that i always frame Certifications in general and specifically fair trade as your minimum wage approach, right? And yeah. the direct trade and all other kinds of ways of trading coffee as your, you know, your, you know, better salaries, right? But you want to have a minimum wage. Imagine if in the Netherlands there was no minimum wage. Um, who would be, you know, conceptually speaking, making sure that people don't get paid below a certain uh, price point? Uh, makes sense because you want to make sure that you don't, you know, we don't take advantage of people with uh, less resources um, and we want them to lead a decent life. That's the minimum wage. And I don't think anybody would be comfortable in removing uh, minimum wage policies in any, um, you know, democracies, right? So in a way I always see certification in that sense and say, Hey guys, uh, to, to secure a basic standard of living, I'm not, I mean, we're not talking about thriving I'm talking about meeting Day to day Life needs um, You know you really should be Considering to pay coffee no less than
0: Yeah um, Covering the cost of production and the living income For the farmer and his yeah, family
1: exactly. Yeah and exactly and, 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 and that to me Makes a lot of sense it's, it's the right approach If anything let's make sure that this is, this is As low as it gets
0: yeah that's the minimum yeah yeah
1: and that's why it's called you know the, the when a lot of people go after the fair trade minimum price but it's called minimum price the yeah. reality is that a lot of coffee even in specialty sometimes is traded below the minimum price of 140 so we're not we're not even we're not even meeting the the minimum
0: understand it so there i'm noticing there's a a, a, an elephant in this room yeah Uh, so uh, fair trade uh, should be the minimum you say it should be the the minimum income or revenue uh, a coffee farmer can uh, um, receive for uh, for its produce Uh, but how large is the percentage uh, that is being uh, traded this way so how large is the the fair trade uh, yeah, uh, the the, vo- the volume compared yeah. to the, the, the entire volume
1: yeah it's it's a good question i think that i i don't know the the answer from the back of my head but it's definitely
0: i, I, th- I think we don't want to know that answer yeah
1: <laughs> yeah i mean not not all coffee certified uh. and not everybody can afford a fair trade certification too and you know fair trade certification only works for smallholders call farmers that are organizing cooperatives so it's a solution but it's not the solution and that's no. why you also have other certifications right like rainforest and oots who are now merged um, yeah. you have organic certification so they all they all play play a part and they all basically try to do one thing they are setting certain standards of productions that need to be met and what you get in exchange of meeting certain production standards is that you get a some level of guarantee on a price and some fair trade is only the only organization that really says there is a minimum price below which you are um breaching basically or or breaking the law and you have a lot of other certifications that tend to they don't don't have a minimum price but there is an expectation that there will be a premium paid for meeting the rainforest on production standards and sustainability standards and so forth. So they all kind of offer, guarantee something in exchange for uh, a price premium. And that is one way of looking at it. And I think that has worked quite a bit. Like, you know, fair trade and organic tend to work quite well with smallholders cooperatives. If you are an estate, uh, maybe, you know, maybe rainforest could be an interesting... Uh, option for you then you have you have a, all kinds of um you know rainforest. and Oots have now merged so that's that's easier so that's that's the certification card is a card that uh, you you can play and to a certain extent it can help you or not knowing that um not everybody is interested in buying certified coffee that the certified market is still um could be bigger but it's not so you know i mean you you have risks as well involved it's not a perfect system
0: uh and what kind of risks uh, would you uh...
1: well for example is that you have fair trade and fair trade organic coffee but um the market doesn't is not interested and so uh, you have course, to sell yeah. it as conventional uh meaning maybe still specialty but with you know you you have a certification but you can't sell it as fair trade and organic your your buyers don't want it so there's a lot of coffee that is produced under certification standards, but is sold as conventional non-certified coffee yeah. simply because the market is not ready. To-
0: yeah, it's, it's quite um, good to conclude uh, from what you just mentioned and also from uh, my own experiences with uh, certification programs. Mm. There is no uh, one uh, certification that is good for all. So um, yeah. um I can imagine for a, a regular consumer they want to buy a good feeling they want to contribute uh, buying the coffee and have a um uh, and, and and under the perception that they are contributing for the livelihoods of coffee farmers in this case and as for um uh, certifications that uh, you have uh, came across uh, which ones are um the least valuable for the, the the coffee value chain the supply chain and I for the it, livelihoods of uh, coffee farmers
1: yeah i think it's hard to to make a ranking because it, it really you really need to you really need to think about what makes sense uh uh for a smallholder or a producer yeah, for organization yeah. so it's yes, the
0: nuances yeah yeah as yeah. you mentioned the, the rfa uh, might be good if you have an estate but not for smallholders. Uh, and the other way around
1: yeah and 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 a lot of organizations actually end up having multiple certifications uh but then you know you could also i mean some people may say i don't need a certification right i'm i'm speaking to a, a, a segment of buyers that don't care about fair trade and organic they are just really on quality and and traceability um of the lots and um you know they they're are willing to pay um, high premiums in exchange for um, for quality, for traceability, for transparency and yeah. so forth. And that's more like a private uh, discussion between a you know, a farmer, a producer and 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 an importer or, or a buyer and they may tell you none of none of my clients are asking for a certification, then you don't no. you don't have that problem.
0: Uh, to be honest, I don't know uh, many uh, either. I, th- I think uh, that uh, what you describe now uh, is um, probably the standard for all small roasters uh, uh, in the Netherlands and maybe in Europe and maybe mm-hmm. worldwide. Mm-hmm. So they just want a direct connection, full transparency, full traceability. Uh, they want the details of the product. They mm-hmm. want to know the person involved. Um, and you're describing a, a completely connected uh, chain. Uh, in which people communicate about the, the quality of the produce. Um, the roasters are in the market and growing the market, expanding their uh, the market on their side, uh, trying to find those they're seeking to serve with uh, a better quality. And in that terms, also uh, pulling forward more coffee growers and coffee farmers producing a better quality and giving yeah. uh, receiving a higher premium. And there's a lot of small roasters uh involved in the the entire industry, and they all take a little part in this, but to be honest, I think that is quite a big uh industry it's a fast growing uh volume uh I keep on hearing stories of uh, colleague roasters they they double their uh their volume each year and it's small volumes, but it's doubling it's going super fast so for me my my vision on uh, certifications i don't uh, attach a lot of value to it uh, it is good to create um, some sort of a scalable uh, model to maintain uh, pricing uh, a minimum but i believe the whole specialty industry is uh, moving uh, far uh, from not far from that but moving um, yeah moving away from that and uh, taking responsibility um uh, for their supply chain i think that is the most important thing just take responsibility of your supply chain don't, don't you agree
1: yeah i think it's i think it's definitely so and i mean this this taking responsibility of your own supply chain or having direct contacts is possible because you know uh, through the fair trade and the certification system we were able to break up the commodity chain already right so yeah you know, it's always there's always an evolution. Um, we start with uh, small gains, and then these small gains will allow you to make new gains and so forth. So it's 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 it, it was by, you know, mid two thousand or by let's say two thousand and eight nine when really direct trade started to become a um, a business model. Um, this was possible because by then we already knew who was producing coffee. We knew producers, we knew their realities. The roasters started to travel at origin, something that was never done before. Um, you know, in the 80s and the 70s, no coffee trader was traveling to meet farmers. So yeah. now all of a sudden, you know, you're saying, hey, I I know, who, I understand who we are dealing with. They I've met them. I've visited them. I'm cupping coffee with them. The yeah. most natural step is, well, why don't we just find an agreement among ourselves and bring in other service providers, could be the lenders, could be the importers, yeah. and let's make this business viable for you and I, right? So that was a natural um evolution. And it goes hand in hand, I think, with changing consumption habits. Um, we always think of coffee in a in a way in a silo, but you know. Consumers here in 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 the Netherlands, where we are in Europe in the United States are becoming more and more conscious about what they eat, where the products come from um, and and so they are becoming more demanding you know t- twenty years ago, nobody would question the quality of food that would be pro- put out in supermarkets or you know
0: massive supply
1: chains yeah, now we just diff- there
0: there were no questions about it yeah.
1: exactly people just wanted to i mean how many exactly like people were did not have that as a priority now it is a priority yeah, so there was
0: no diversification yeah
1: exactly so now i think that consumers want to be uh want to be more informed and scrutinize companies more than they used to. Now, a lot of people say, ah, but consumers don't care. Uh, You know, don't, don't rely on consumers if you want to change the, 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 the industry. But to me, I I actually feel that consumer have changed a lot. Like even the way I buy, um, even the way my purchasing decisions are very different from my mom's purchasing decisions. Um, So I think that this, this way of understanding coffee and this direct trade is, is is become more relevant because I think consumers are, are requesting things that we're not requesting even 10, 15 years ago. Um, but the, 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 the challenge that I see in, although it is a very fast growing segment, um, is that specialty coffee is not as readily available as commercial grade coffee. So a lot of people still go to supermarkets to buy their coffee and it's very rare to see specialty coffee brands in commercial supermarkets. Maybe you see yeah. one or two, right? But the yeah. vast majority of specialty coffee brands are available through retail, right? So you go to the coffee shop and you consume there. Um, or uh, maybe online, which now with after COVID-19...
0: We'll uh, there's a, a lot of offers uh, online currently. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so, you know, so when you go to more mass... Uh, outlets for for coffee uh, and you go to supermarkets and so forth, Um, if I'm my mom and I definitely do not buy coffee online and I definitely do not go to coffee shops, I go buy my coffee in the supermarket, right? When I do all my grocery and what do I buy? Yeah. Yeah, the convenience stores. And what she will buy is either a commercial brand or a certified brand of fair trade and organic and that at that level of convenience certification is better than you know i I hope that more people will go there so i still see that role being played um while specialty catches up with becoming more readily available because i think that so far uh, specialty coffee is still confined to the geographical has geographical limitations right so if i live in the countryside um where do i get my specialty yeah um I have to be online, right? And up until six months ago, online was not even really a thing. Um, And if I go online, then I need my brewing equipment at home. So you can start seeing why it's true that direct trade is gaining a lot of traction, um, but it can't can't cover all of it. And you will always have consumers that are not willing to pay some of the prices that specialty is offering. So then yeah. you go back to your minimum wage, like, hey, but at least try to buy something that doesn't keep people in poverty or or so forth. So I, yeah, it, to me, it's never a question of who's better or what's more important. The question is, can we make sure that we grow our pie bigger between the certified and the direct trade and take over?
0: Yeah. The yeah. Op- open up that store. market. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I think specialty coffee has a big role in that to uh, mm-hmm. create more awareness and and uh, to 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 yeah to to open it up uh, um, more towards aware, awareness that more people also in the supermarket would uh, choose a fair trade coffee over a commodity coffee.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that is uh, that is an important role for specialty. Um, but speaking of uh, of this, uh, you have uh, Vuna Origins Consulting. Mm-hmm. Um and this is uh something you consult in for coffee roasters uh and importers. Yeah. Um so c- can you explain what are what is your main uh main focus uh, point uh with your um uh, with your company?
1: Um okay, so I started co- I started Voon Origin Consulting in 2015, and the idea, you know, the mission was to make coffee more equitable and sustainable. And and uh, I wanted to do that by um, basically providing a range of services and products that could help companies wherever they are in the value chain, producers, importers, roasters, to achieve that. And so I decided to look at, I, to look at the supply chain and look what kind of services and products can I offer in order to enable value chain partners to make coffee equitable and sustainable. And so I decided to divide all my range of products and services into what I call four coffee journeys. And coffee journey one, which is production of coffee. So actually growing it and, and producing coffee. Uh coffee journey two, which is access to market. So think about all the work, um, you know, uh moving the coffee from a producing country to a consuming country, um, finding the buyers, and so opening up that value chain, so access to market. Coffee journey three, which is product development, so more about working with, in this case, roasters in producing products that make sense to them and make sense to their consumer. So finding products that um, are meet the quality standards, but also meet their consumer expectations. And so from blends to R&D and so forth, or even setting up specialty coffee program. I'm working with a couple of large commercial brands and I'm curating their specialty coffee program. So that's Coffee Journey 3 product development. And then the last journey, Coffee Journey 4, is digital growth and consumer engagement, which is basically supporting companies in... Increasing their presence in the digital space, um, whether it's website or social channels um, and help get um, help them in engaging with consumers better on digital channels so that's uh, market intelligence, social listening and and so forth so coffee journey four really is everything about uh, digital growth and engagement so with these four journeys, I feel like I am able to support companies in achieving their mission and by making coffee sustainable
0: and equitable. Yeah, nice. Uh, Sarah, one, uh, one last thing before we uh, wrap up. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I have, uh, as I mentioned before, you were involved in, uh, in a project in Myanmar, in Burma. Uh, yeah. that, was, uh, that, that, that made quite a lot of uh, fuss and uh, it was funded by the USA to train farmers in uh, in the region uh, around uh, Hopong yep. uh, to produce specialty coffee instead of opium and this project was quite successful and yeah maybe you can uh, elaborate on that i have some uh, some things written down i've uh, told this story to to many people already before yeah also with the involvement of uh, the United Nations in uh, a nearby village and the farmers crossing over. It's an interesting story. So can you tell me more about that?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, when um, economic and political diplomatic uh, sanctions were lifted from Myanmar, the USAID and other uh, government development agency decided to invest in Myanmar and help them achieve economic growth. And... uh, through Winrock International, um, USAID wanted to develop um, agricultural and rural value chains in Myanmar. And among these, um, among the value chains that were identified, Winrock also selected coffee as a value chain that they wanted to um, uh, support, grow, and develop further. And they are operating in southern uh, Southern Shan State, which is one of the sort of the, one of the food baskets of of myanmar and they started with in a particular area um a region and working with quite a few quite a few communities um, the project lasted for about three to four years and in those four years of course um the scope and level of engagement uh, grew and other neighboring communities that were not originally involved in the Winrock uh, coffee value chain program uh, showed a lot of interest because the project was going very well. It was a very successful project. Um, international buyers started to come and Myanmar started to gain traction as a specialty coffee origin. And so specifically the, the pharma group that you've, you've mentioned, Hopong, uh joined the project quite late, actually, almost, uh, you know, towards the end of the project, because they heard about the trainings that were going on. They heard about the quality that was being produced, and they just wanted to be part of it. Um, They were in a region that it was different, a region where Windrock was uh, officially operating, and they were operating uh, in a region where you had a United Nations uh, program we call it the crop replacement program. So a program where you try to replace the growing illicit crops like uh, opium and yeah. convert it to illicit crops like coffee.
0: Yeah. So uh, from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Yes, it correct. It. Yeah.
1: And and so they had their own program. Um. To their they had their own crop replacement program. But this particular community was, uh, interested in accessing a specialty coffee value chain and 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 therefore they decided to sort of uh join and ask to to access the training that winrock was doing uh in another region and that's but yeah that's that's the that's the coffee that eventually was brought uh here in the in europe in and specifically in the netherlands and it's probably the coffee that you're you're currently drinking um it is yeah it's from
0: uh the village of Longhay.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember I visited Long A the first year. Oh, that's year. nice. Yeah, and they had one bag. They had literally one bag of coffee, like 160 kg bags. And they said, this is all we have for specialty. Wow. Um, can you find a buyer? Can you find somebody who's willing to take this coffee? And uh, and it just tells you, you know, it, it all has to start from somewhere. So yeah. Long A started with one bag. And... Uh, you know, we found a buyer. Uh, this side up was the importer and uh, the rest is history.
0: Yeah. So now, it started with one bag from uh, the Long Hay village, uh, the yeah. village of Long Hay. Yeah. Uh, how, do you know uh, how much uh, bags it was last year?
1: Look, with the first, the very first order was one bag from Long Hay and another two bags. So I think in total we had three bags. Yeah. Um, and then the last year, which I think is the third year of commercial uh, sort of commercial partnership with this side up i think it was about 200 bags total
0: yeah so, 200 bags yeah
1: yeah a little shy of a container almost yeah. a container load
0: and actually uh, everything we've discussed um in the last uh, hour it is already uh, um talking about the price the cost of production mm. Uh, mm. the quality uh, quality premiums uh, direct connections um uh, everything um actually translates into this coffee because the farmers get a a, a really high premium uh, this side up uh, is paying for that um there's a di- direct connection to the market that values a uh, quality and initiatives like this and it's uh, it's ever growing and um also uh, i believe and correct me if i'm wrong uh, via the 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 kilo kilogram price via the 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 coffee price Uh, there's also um uh, roads and uh, drying facilities being so it's it's a more inclusive trade instead of just trading on volume and price uh, there's uh, trading going on here based on quality uh, story improvement and um, uh, of course mutual benefits but um, aiming on progress and future uh, future growth
1: yeah, it's definitely a long term, um, a long term plan that uh, Hopong and and decide up put put in place. So it goes beyond, you know, what am I gonna? How much am I willing to pay you this year for the quality that you produce? But it's really about understanding what Hopong wants to achieve on a more holistic scale. So they want to find a they want to build a value chain that guarantees them independence, guarantees a certain level of, of revenues and income and sustain their livelihoods. And they want to um, make coffee their number one uh, crop. Yeah. Um, and so, and what do, they, what do they need to do in order to, to fulfill their dream is to produce specialty and to guarantee traceability and to work together with uh, folks like this side up uh, to make sure that they continue to produce coffee in a sustainable way, in a transparent way, and so forth, and also work together with other partners, whether it's uh, you know accessing credit, which is always very important in any business, yeah. or relying on you know exporters and millers to to do the job so it's it's a complex relationship and it's a long term Uh, long-term plan yeah
0: so just to uh to um summarize the um the impact it had um the producers were used to produce opium and um more and more coffee farmers are moving towards opium because of the uh, the higher pricing Mm -hmm. but there's also a higher risk involved
1: yeah
0: and the low pricing uh, of coffee um, it involves a lower risk um, but on the other hand, yeah, it doesn't cover for the cost of production and a living income. So coffee farmers are more likely to move towards illicit crop, uh, just to keep their heads above the, the water. Uh, and there's not many alternatives for it in terms of specialty coffee, including, a, a premium for quality, uh, for coffee farmers, then there's low pricing plus a, plus a premium for quality to start on the, the lowest end. And also with direct connections, there's a, a direct um, entry point to the market where the quality is, um, is being valued. So in, in my opinion, a project like uh, this um, is, um, is a perfect example of how coffee should be produced and how more initiatives uh, should be yeah, um, <laughs> initiated and should be uh, uh, managed um and i I think you have done a really nice job there
1: Uh thank you um yeah well first of all i think it's really important to remember that farmers are not gonna wait for coffee professionals like you and i um to come up with the right answer right so if they feel that their livelihoods at risk they're not gonna call me and ask me, Hey Sarah, what should I do? They're going to do what they need to do in order to, as you said, keep their heads
0: to survive. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So whatever that means. And in some places it means growing illicit crops in other, in other places it means um, not sending your kids to school and forcing them to go to the big city and work as taxi drivers or, you know, there's so many different options and then farmers are going to choose whatever suits them. And fits them yeah. the best. So in, yeah, in whatever is available. Exactly. Yeah. So in Nopong, of course, um, you know, that this, this area was, um, and I certainly was part of uh, the of of opium production and sort of what we call the golden triangle between Laos, Myanmar and, and Thailand. And so unfortunately yeah. it's an it's a reality that, that they had to it's it's their everyday reality. Um it will take you know what I always say is I'm glad that the project started with the right foot and it started with the right premises, which was we all, we all do something better in exchange for something else. And that applies both to the farmers who still need to produce specialty and they need to comply with traceability and sustainability. And it, it definitely applies to TSU that on the one hand is, 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 is going to have to remain a buyer um regardless of what the market situation is, for example now i mean right now in the netherlands it's a tough market and t s u is still like you know is it, you know we hope it's committed to to continue being a commercial partner and and what they get in exchange for that is the the trust and the you know the product the farmer so it's it's a give and take everybody gives something and takes something and I think that that's the that's the right premise, and we hope that it will last for a really long time, right? So, it, because it's good to find the right premise in year one, year two, year three, right? In a way, yeah. it's, it's relatively a new product. It's a new relationship. It's like, it's like dating, right? It's like the first few years, everything is, is great. And then you start hitting a, your first roadblocks, right? So how good are the two partners in working out their problems and overcoming it? And I think that when you think about fair trade, sorry, direct trade, You really think about well, you know, this is a long term relationship, so we are bound at one point to hit a wall, and the ability is how how do we overcome it? And I think that COVID nineteen is a perfect is is maybe the first wall that um, that relationship will 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 encounter. And from what I'm understanding, is that I think that they are they're both trying. Their best to overcome this first wall, and that's where you want to be. Um, yeah. So to say that oh, we do direct trade, everything is going to be, um, you know, great and no problem, everything will be jolly. It's it's not true. No. Um, so that's that's why direct trade is harder than you think,
0: right? right? It's not. But on the it, there's a lot e- of uh, room for more possibilities, uh, more development. But there's also yeah there's still a lot of uh, uh risk for failure. it takes work yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah.
1: but yeah I mean it offers multiple i mean at that point you you can think of solutions that might not be applicable in other places, so you have a lot of there's a lot of innovation that can yeah. go in and there's as long as people are you know their hearts in, is in the right place. Um, I think that there is a lot of innovation that can happen. A lot of interesting projects, uh, become very unique because the problems that they are facing are very unique. Uh, but it is a lot of work. So if people say, oh, I'm just going to do direct trade because it's easy. I was like, nah, that's not easy. Is not what I would associate direct trade with. I think it's really hard and really complex and it takes a lot of commitment, but if you do it right, um, it can yield a lot of success and a lot of satisfaction.
0: Uh, Sarah, to conclude our uh, uh, the very first uh, podcast, uh, Ikigai Coffee has uh, has now done, and uh, to conclude our conversation, uh, I have one uh, final question for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, if you can uh, remove all barriers and constraints, mm-hmm. uh, what project would you do, and why?
1: I yeah, I would combine two projects and i'm i'm working a lot on price risk management which um is basically um uh, the price risk management is the use of uh physical and financial strategies to to manage price volatility so it's it's very technical and 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 it 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 does include the use of financial tools um but and then there's other projects that i work on which is on living income right which is yeah. moving away from minimum wage, right? So it's like, first we said, what is the minimum wage? And now we're thinking about, well, what is what is a living income in Kenya or in Ethiopia or in Colombia, right? So yeah. a, a project that addresses both, that starts with what is a living income for a farmer that grows coffee on, on a hectare of, of of land. And then, so... Use the tools available for us to determine and establish what that living income should look like at the farm level, and then work with cooperatives to use pricers management as a way to reach and guarantee a living income to its uh, members. So it's a very complex and it's two layered project. But to me, that that would be that would be the the the, the best uh, the best of both worlds because you can address the question of the farmer. But you can also work with producer organizations, which I think are are necessary intermediary between the farmer and the buyer uh, purely because of volume and and efficiency in the supply chain. but they are both important so farm level producer organization level that would be my my favorite uh, my favorite project to work on if i if I could
0: Cool uh Sarah. I want to thank you a lot for uh, for being on the, the podcast, for being my first uh, guest. We can keep on talking about the issues in coffee because there are a lot of uh, issues, uh, but we can also fill in um, a lot of solutions and uh, opportunities. Um, so um, I want to invite you to a later uh, podcast as well, and we can just continue the conversation again i um, uh, uh, I've enjoyed it. <laughs> thank so, uh, you. No, thank no. you. thank you. Thank um, you. Yeah, I, I always yeah.
1: like. Uh, uh, of there I enjoy talking uh, about coffee, coffee challenges in general, and dive into complex issues like whether it's you know the, the price volatility and, and uh, you know the the challenges and the opportunities of direct trade um, and so forth. So yeah, I enjoy yeah. it. I, I tend to talk a lot. Um, so i'm sure that uh, we can we can continue
0: yeah there's a there's a lot (laughs) of work to be done uh, yeah so well cool thank you sarah if you want to find out more about this episode or any other episodes please visit www.ikigai.coffee and i hope to see you there